Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Just a quick reminder that I do have a show raffle option where I raffle off a 30-minute consultation with me every month. The way to enter that is just to share a show or episode on social media. So you find an episode you like, share it with your friends and followers, tag me so I know you did it. That enters you in the raffle, and I will announce those at the start of each month. You can share multiple episodes and get entered more than once if you want. It is just an initiative I've been doing to give back in terms of the listeners who are out there spreading the word, and it does go a long way when people like, subscribe, give show reviews, and then share episodes so it gets spread to a wider audience. If you do want to support the show in other means, I do have a show Patreon page and support options on the show landing page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. The show Patreon page does give you access to early release episodes. It also is ad-free right to the point. So if you subscribe on Patreon, you get those accesses and uh, can jump right into the topic. Supporting this podcast this year have been my friends at Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. I have full descriptions of how I use both of these products. I've been partnering with them because I do use both of them in my own training and racing. So if you're interested in getting into the weeds a little bit more about how I actually use these products to maybe sense out whether they'd be a useful tool for you personally. At the very end of the show, I've got more thorough descriptions of each of those. For now, just a couple quick promotions they're running at the moment. Element has right now a promotion where they're letting you try out a free sample pack of each of their flavors. Those include citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango, chili, raw, unflavored. If you go to drink, LMNT, dot com forward slash hbo that lets them know you came from here and gets you that free sample pack with your first purchase they also have no questions asked return policy so if you get them decide you don't like them or they're not as advertised the way you thought they would be they will give you your money back no questions asked don't even have to send the box back delta g ketones is something i've been using this year i've been following the exogenous ketone research for quite some time now including a few years ago when i had dr brianna stubbs on it's gotten to the point where I've uh, found it to be something I'm worth, I find worthwhile putting into my training and racing. So they have uh, a ton of research on their website at deltagketones.com where they have 50 plus published studies and 20 plus ongoing studies. And they also will do a free consultation with you if you're interested in how that would maybe apply to your lifestyle versus kind of how I'm using them. So again, feel free to jump to the end of the episode or wait to the end of the episode to hear how I use that in my own training and racing protocol. It's deltagketones.com. Links to both of these sponsors will be in the show notes as well as the show landing page. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so... I needed to record a post Havelina 100 episode and historically I've done these just by myself with solo episodes, but it's lonely in this studio by myself. So I thought I'll bring you up here. I can imagine <laughs> one's a lonely number. So. Yeah, no, in, in, in reality, the reason I want to have you on for this episode is because not only are you very experienced with the Havelina 100 from a runner standpoint, but you crewed me this year too. So you were very much kind of front seat to watch everything kind of play out. Actually, you didn't just crew me, you paced me for a loop as well. So you saw quite a bit of it. Yes, I definitely had the full, um, the full experience this year and it was fun. Mm -hmm. It was a fun day. Yeah. What was it like crewing and pacing after two years racing it in, what was it? 2020 and 2022, I suppose, right? Yeah. You know, I've, I've never figured out if I 
find it more stressful to be racing or to be <laughs> crewing and pacing. There's an element of once you get started racing that certainly you know that um, you have to, you know, go the distance and 100 miles is certainly um, challenging to wrap your head around. Um, but there's something about pacing and crewing you that gives me a lot of anxiety as well. So I just really haven't decided which is um, is tougher. But, you know, all in all, um, yeah, it was a fun day to be out there. Yeah, it's an interesting point, though, because I guess I probably have better perspective right now. and Oh, maybe not, just reverse perspective because I crewed you last year and now I ran it this year. I think it's more stressful crewing, to be honest with you. At least it was this time for me. I, I would say there's probably been races that I wouldn't feel that way where I'd be like, man, I'm glad that I wasn't the one out there running it. Yeah. But for whatever reason for Javelina this year, I felt like it was pretty kind of even keel. Like I didn't feel like the emotions of it made it stressful the way it maybe can, can mm -hmm. at times with these type of events. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the challenge of um, pacing and crewing you you the day almost feels astronomically long because mm -hmm. you're just out there waiting for your runner and you're somewhat helpless right you almost have less control so you're kind of a bystander so mm -hmm. you know that once your runner comes around every loop you're on point so it's like you've got to get ready and then when the runner leaves and you did something wrong you like think about it for a long period of time whereas the runner probably just adapts mm -hmm. so there's an element where i think just having the control of being the racer makes it i think a bit easier than the the crew and pacer um but i think also you've probably again you've crewed and paced me in more of these trail races than i probably have um, crude and paste you. So it's a little, unique. yeah, it's different on a 400 meter loop for sure. Cause right. <laughs> <laughs> there are really consequences. You, you because... get a little bit of downtime. Right. At Havelina. <laughs> the, the thing I think that was interesting to me was, so I've done Havelina three times now and I've had different experiences there in 2016. I won it and set what was the course record at the time. And I thought in hindsight, naively that it was like a well-executed race because <laughs> so like hey, you win and set the course record like what other like what other like conclusion are you going to draw but you know looking back at it now where I am in the sport and just with hindsight and with better knowledge of what I think is kind of racing strategy or optimal racing strategy I should say like my race in 2016 I went out way too fast I did again in 2017 had a pretty good result that year. That would, I would say 2017 was a very competitive year for Javelina relative to the old Javelina. Javelina now is on a whole nother level than what it's ever been, as you experienced, I think, last year to a large degree, which is cool to see. But in 2017, I went out like, wait, I, I doubled down on my mistakes from 2016 and found out that when you double down on your mistakes versus correct them, you pay for those mistakes exponentially worse. So I... I still got second place behind what was a you know a course record year again with Pat Reagan who ran a phenomenal time 13 flat at Havelina back then was like no one was like looking for that sort of a result uh, but I got second place and I ran slower than I had the year prior so it was kind of clear in my mind all right that didn't work the way I thought it would and really the reality is when you analyze both those splits from 2016 and 2017, the thing that stands out was just the kind of my regression over the course of the five laps versus any sort of maintenance or 
even negative splitting. And I think what's changed my mind between now and then is that I think the optimal race is going to be done at a very small margin to either side of even split. And I think it's just like an interesting thought process and something that maybe the ultra running world hasn't bought into in any meaningful way yet because you just don't see it. Like even a lot of the course records and some of the fastest times and world records for that matter are done with positive splits and oftentimes like what I would consider like big positive splits relative to what we would see in other endurance sports that are a little more have been professional, I think, for a longer period of time. Why do you think that is that you, that we have big positive splits on even some of the big performances? I mean, I think it's a twofold. I think it's one is a hundred mile distance is really long. So the intensity that is going to be average. So if you took someone's like pure potential and said like, this is the number you can run if everything goes right, it's going to feel so slow at the beginning. It's almost going to be to a degree where whatever feels easy should probably be brought back another small degree to make that actually doable. And that's such a hard thing to do when you're in the heat of competition, when you're tapered, when you have anxiety and the stress of race day and things like that. And then there's also this thing where I think once people get experience as to what the end of an ultra feels like, you know how bad it can feel or how hard it can get. So the idea of going slower kind of has this like weird thing in the back of your mind where you feel like if I don't bank time now, I'm going to arrive in that same really discomfort or uncomfortable problematic spot that I have to try to like get through, but I'm going to arrive at it in a later time than I would before. So I'm going to have to work even harder in what was in an environment that they've perceived as being incapable of working any harder than they already are. What do you think though about just putting yourself out in the competition? Because if everyone else is going out, Mm-hmm. you know, relatively well, quicker. I think there's that aspect that I just wonder how that that factors in. Yeah, there's the psychology of it. So I would say this. I would say there are going to be runners who, if they're not in the thick of it, they will stress themselves out and an even split or a negative split won't be an option for them in that scenario because they're going to be running themselves crazy in their mind not being in the mix of it and that mental stress will likely put them in a position where they may still not even split or negative split even if they get out conservatively but i would consider that a sports psychology issue not a Mm -hmm. this is your reality issue i think that's a problem that you can solve and if you solve that problem you're going to level up versus being oh this is my reality i have to make the best with it taking a step back just kind of um setting the stage too just curious because i know you were coming off of an injury um, earlier in the summer. And I just want to hear about your buildup to Javelina because I thought that was interesting. Um, because I know in living with you, you have had a couple of tough years. And so just want your perspective of, um, you know, how your buildup was. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing for me about it was one, I had a great buildup. I had a 20 week buildup that went basically as flawless as I could have expected it to go. Uh, the only problem, like when I was looking at just like, what should I do? Because you eventually have to get, when I, I talk about even and negative splitting, and it's one of those things where not only have I screwed it up more often than not, uh, you know, so it, it, it's, it's tough because at the end of the day, you have to end up picking a number that's accurate enough to put that plan into place. Because if it's inaccurate, then it's like, you're going to end up not actually executing, which is always, which has been my biggest hurdle with that is I think I've had, 
a scenario where when I've had my best, I had my best races in my career in 2019. And that also happened to be the year where I really learned how to even a negative split. So my perspective with it has my historical best performances. And then you get injured and you lose a lot of that fitness and a lot of that momentum. Well, what was the target in 2019 was a, is not a good target for me when I'm not in that condition where I've stacked running cycle after running cycle after running cycle on top of each other. So to some degree, it's like you have to be honest with yourself about where your fitness is at. So I sort of had a, I had a, a tough decision to make in my mind, which was I had this great buildup that matched some of the buildups that I've had historically where I've produced some of my better races, but I didn't have training cycles compounded on one another. Because like you said, the last two years I've had so many interruptions not not enough to like really take me out for like an entire year or even from races, but to the point where I wasn't racing at a high level comparatively to where I would before. So curious, taking a step back. So what do you mean that your current training matched some of your previous? I just want to get a oh, sense of yeah. what. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, I collect a ton of data. I mean, you know how I go about things with this. Is I collect a lot of data. So I know like kind of I have certain benchmarks that I try to hit. And if I can hit those benchmarks, then I'm confident in my body's physical capabilities of being able, within reason, I mean, it's not precise. I mean, it's 100-mile racing. We just don't have the accurate data to be, like, as precise as we could in, say, like, the 5K, 10K, or even any any Olympic distance sport, we'll say. So, like, but I have a reasonable amount of data where, like, when I can hit certain benchmarks, my confidence goes way up in terms of, like, where I can kind of target or what I can target. So it goes from, like, this could be a range of like an hour or to like, it, it's a range of like 10 minutes of what I could probably do today. So when I have a good buildup, like I had this time, I feel like I can narrow that range down a lot more. And some of that's probably just the confidence of it all too, where it's like, if you that's, doubt it. That's it, what I wonder, mm-hmm. how much does confidence play in? Do you think there's this aspect of almost like the placebo that's so important? Because from my perspective, I think that's a major part of it, but maybe it's just me. Yeah. I mean, I think it plays a part, but there's also, I mean, there's, there is a physical, there's a, there's a mental piece to this, but there's also the physical piece where like, I mean, at a certain point, like, let's say I have a certain amount of mental fortitude available to me. And when I'm really confident, I have that full mental fortitude capacity to work with. If I go out and I run a race, if I run silly, for the first two laps of the Havelina five loop course, the amount of mental fortitude I'm going to have to expend in order to keep things moving is going to be way higher than it would be if I'm more in control and running sustainably. So at the end of the day, I like to look at it as I'm, I'm working with a certain amount of mental currency. And if I overspend early on, it doesn't matter how confident I was going in because there's still a threshold as to where I, where I'm not going to exceed with that or a limit to how much of that I'm going to have available to me, even on my best days. So I do think like that's, and there's a balance there too. I mean, I don't think this is like a, a very exact thing where it's like, oh, that one second per mile threw you off. I think it's a range. And the idea is to get in that range and not deviate from that, what we'll call it maybe a loading zone in order to kind of keep that in a sustainable manner. So going back to the your strategy mm-hmm. on at Havelina, really, what were you going in with your mindset? What was the strategy? Because yeah. I think that's I'll interesting. Just, I'll just finish answering your first question though, because I would I would say one of my one of my little 
pieces of doubt I had that I was trying to get over or, or, or consider, I should say, when I was picking a race goal was historically I've done really well with compounding training cycles. So I did go in knowing I had one really good buildup, but I didn't have any before that. So it was like, what does that mean? Does that mean like I don't have the relative strength that I maybe would have had when I could compound a couple or two or three on top of one another? So that was the uncertainty, I would say, even though the training data suggested that I thought I was in a really good spot. But to answer your next question, what I, I thought about this in two ways. My goal with Javelina was to try to get a golden ticket because it was going to be to try to race into Western states for, for next year's racing plans. And when I looked at the field and the forecast in the kind of the week to two weeks leading into it, because both of those things kind of continue to evolve, right? Like you never know the forecast to so get up right up to it. The reality is with golden ticket races now is people are going to jump into them last minute, especially if they perceive that they have a chance to get a spot at Western States. So, you know, it, it got to a point where like I had to sort of wait to have a firm target until like the week of the race. So I had all that data available to me in terms of like what it would mean to actually run a golden ticket race. When it got down to it, I assumed going in, it was going to require something like a sub 13 hour race in order to get a, a golden ticket. And my thought with that was, you know, if we just look at last year, Dakota Jones breaks the course record, breaks 13 hours. John Ray was second place with a 13 it was like an 06 or something like that. So it's like last year, it was almost to the point where you needed to go under 13 hours. I assume progression at this point with events like Javelina that just have grown year after year after year. And now the, so, so the field side's going, the depth is growing, the weather was looking great relative to what you're going to get at Javelina. So all signs to me pointed to sub 13 hour being necessary for a golden ticket. So then I had to ask myself, is that a reasonable goal? Is that something I can assume, or I can, I can reasonably assume is possible? And I thought it was. I thought going in, 1255 to 13 would probably be like my top end absolute best shot like I thought that was on the table I knew it was going to have to be as perfect as one can get with 100 mile running but I thought it wasn't something that was too risky to to go for and since my goal my primary goal was to give myself a shot at Javelina I kind of thought I have to pace myself accordingly for 1255 to 13 hours so that's kind of how I came up with my pacing strategy and how I went about those first two laps. So take us to um, the end of lap two. Yeah. What were you thinking at that point? Were you feeling strong? I know in looking at you and um, you seem pretty confident and happy, which uh -huh. is always a good sign for your runner, right? When mm -hmm. you almost have mental fatigue on your face, that's, that's a sign that's not a good right. thing. <laughs> There's a lot so, of time left at that point. Yeah, so I think coming around and after the second lap and skipping to lap two because lap one is almost so irrelevant because it's mm -hmm. so early. Um, you looked confident and happy. So take us back to that point. Yeah. So since I had data available to me, I was definitely like thinking about these things as they played out. So for some perspective in 2016, I completed the first lap and I should actually probably back up and describe the loop at Javelina. So it's a five loop hundred mile course, but the first loop is longer because the actual loop is like 19 point something miles. So they have to add this little extension on loop one to get it to 100 miles. So the first loop is like 22 and a half miles. And then the rest are like 19.2 or something like that afterwards. So the first loop isn't necessarily a similar reflection from a pacing standpoint as loops two through five. Because um, I'm going to start sharing numbers as we go through this. And I want to make sure people can kind of like compare those. So the first loop in 2016, I did 2.36, 2 hours, 36 minutes, way too fast. 
17. I think I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure this is the fastest first loop done at Javelina, which isn't a record you want unless that comes with a course record. Uh, it was 233. So that's what I mean when I said before I doubled down on my mistakes from the year prior. I went out way too fast. I ran a 233. So my goal this year was like back that starting pace up to be a pace that's sustainable for the full 100 miles and to run a 1255 to 13 i knew that was going to be closer to like a two hour and 50 minute or so first lap so i came through lap one and it gets a little fuzzy because what is lap one you do that little like kind of quarter mile out or like horseshoe thing in start finish so it's like it's always kind of unclear to me it's like where are we actually monitoring this <laughs> the start and the finish of each one of these laps but roughly speaking i think i was like 248 for that first lap i was in like 20 something place so i was way back which is perfect. That's where I, that's what I assumed was going to happen. And I was actually excited about that because in my mind, I was, I was actually ahead of course record pace at that point. I was closer to the 1255 than I was the 13 at that point. So I was like, this is, this is great. Cause there's no way there's 20 some guys that are running under Dakota's course record last year. It means there's gonna be a ton of carnage. Uh, so I was like, just like really excited to be knowing that I'm going to be passing people versus getting past. So lap two, uh, basically the same as lap one from an intensity standpoint. I ran almost split for split the same through that, maybe a pinch slower, just a pinch. Uh, but I passed, I think I counted 14 people in the second lap already. So people are already starting to pay for their first lap pace. And coming through lap two, I was really excited about that aspect because it's like, okay, I moved from like 20th something to, I was somewhere between sixth or eighth place at that point. I'm not clear exactly where it was, but it was somewhere around there. And I was thinking to myself, well, if I pass 14 people on lap two, how many I'm going to pass on three? How many can I pass on four and five? I knew just based on how much fewer people were in front of me, it would be a much smaller number, but it was exciting. I'll say that. Um, I got to like the first aid station on lap three though. And it, that's where I started kind of thinking, I might have cooked it a little bit too much based on where my real potential is today. And I think part of that was, I would say, like, if I made a mistake logistically on race day, it was I should have done a little better job with some cooling stuff, some topical cooling stuff at the end of lap two and the start of lap three, because I felt like maybe I was just overheating a little bit. Um, starting lap three. So going into that first aid station on lap three, I did a much more thorough job of topically cooling with uh, the ice baths in that aid station to try to kind of make sure I wasn't going to back myself into like an overheating corner and blow up. But what ended up happening then that third loop ended up being slower. So rather than maintaining pace, I slowed down on loop three. And so finishing loop three, I was very much thinking like to myself, all right, I may have overshot my potential for the day by a little bit, but it wasn't to the degree where I was either ruling out a really fast last lap. Because as you know, at Javelina, that fifth lap, you can actually get some relief when the sun starts going down. Mm. So I hadn't ruled out at that point. Like if I can just be really good with topical cooling, I'm picking up you as a pacer for loop four, had Chris Danucci for loop five. I was like, you know, there's a chance that if I just kind of like keep it cool this lap the, the, for the rest of lap three and lap four that I could just rip a fifth and kind of have like an interesting split where those first two are pretty good, three and four are kind of like this holding pattern, just kind of like keeping things together. And then lap five is like, let's let it rip type of a situation. So that was my hope at that point. Um, but I wasn't as confident as I think I probably should have been at that point 
in hindsight or as much as I would have liked to. Because the way I would describe like a negative split at that point in the race, you should probably be at a spot where you're kind of almost still kind of thinking like you're still a little giddy, as our friend Nick Curry will say, you're still a little giddy about like what you're going to be able to do relative to what you know is going to happen in the front of the field, which is going to be at least some sort of a slowdown. It may not be a catastrophic slowdown, but there's going to be a slowdown of some degree. So now take us to, you're through loop three, want to get a sense of what were you thinking going to into loop four? Yeah, so loop four, uh, I was really excited to have you for one. Because so <laughs> it was like, okay, well, actually, you know, it was funny because on loop three, I only passed one person. I yeah. passed, I think it was Matt Daniels had, he hit a rough patch. Or I think I think he maybe have DNF'd shortly thereafter, but he was walking maybe like a mile and a half, two miles into loop. No, not even, maybe one mile into loop three. So it was like, you know, you get a little bit of momentum mm-hmm. when you pass someone, regardless of how you're feeling. But I didn't really get that feeling again, that lap, because I didn't pass it. it was, yeah. But I didn't even see anybody really, other than, yeah. you know, other people that were like at different points in the race that you're you're, you're t- lapping, I suppose. Or at that point, there were some 100K runners out there. So I was in a big no man's land, like for most of loop three, where I just kind of felt like I was out in the middle of nowhere. And picking up a pacer in that situation was was nice just to have like you know, just another person there but i was very much in and you, you can probably comment on this i wasn't in like you know how like when you're pacing someone sometimes they want you to chat and you want to have a conversation and that helps pass the time i was very much in a i need to focus right now and just kind of maintain what is feels like a sustainable effort and just kind of like focus with quiet so like I don't think I really said much to you at all that entire lap. No, no, you were really <laughs> focused. And I mean, I thought you were in the zone, which is a good thing. But um, oh, this is loop four. I, know, I think I said three, sorry. You, yeah, and I, I think it was interesting too, because admittedly, I'm used to running against the women's field, right? I felt like we were running quite a quick pace for a loop four when I was out there with you. And so I was surprised we weren't happening upon anybody else. But everyone in front of you seemed to be holding it together, which was, um, you know, unusual, I would think, for more of an elite men's field. Usually mm-hmm. I'm... I. At, I, you know, I don't want to stereotype, but I typically feel like there's a bit more of blow ups that we've seen. And so, um, just not passing anybody on loop four, I was a bit surprised as well. Um, so Mm -hmm. I was trying to like rationalize it. Yeah. (laughs) Say maybe we're coming upon somebody and, Mm -hmm. and hold it together. But yeah, I, I felt like, um, I was a bit surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And on loop four, was the first loop where I got concrete information as mm-hmm. to where I was in the field. I was in fifth. Right. So I got that piece of information and then I got a piece of information that suggested that there, well, fifth means four people in front of you, that two of the guys in front of me looked really rough and two looked pretty solid. So coming in to loop four, end of loop four and start loop five with Chris, I I felt actually pretty solid at the the last I felt maybe a little rough for the first two miles of the last four on loop four. But then on two, you hit that little kind of canyon section before you turn. And at that point in the day, that mountain range or whatever is on the right-hand side sort of kind of gives you like a tiny bit of shade, which is like super foreign to that event (laughs) uh, during any other point of the day. 
So it was almost kind of almost like I think it was just like this little bit of a weight off my shoulders from just like the, the, the energy of the sun changing. And then I saw Hal Corner out there. So I was like, oh, that's Hal Corner because <laughs> he's a legend in the sport. So it's kind of interesting to see him. But I was I still had it in my mind that when I pick up Chris, maybe that'll light a spark and I'll just start ripping faster paces in lap five than I did in three or four. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting to hear. And, um, you know, I think you you stayed strong. What were you thinking as it started to transition to into kind of nightfall? Were you still positive and excited? Yeah, you know, I was I was positive and I was focused similar to when I was running with you. I would say like over the course of loop five, I think is where it set in that there was a good chance I wasn't going to catch even fourth place. So going into loop five, I was still pretty optimistic that I'd probably catch two more people. I thought at that point I was like, all right, I could get third here with a strong finish. And, and then and part of me was just like, well, knowing the field and knowing that Ryan Montgomery was one of the guys ahead of me, which was important in this case scenario, because I was targeting a golden ticket, Ryan's already in Western States. So if he finishes ahead of me, that bears no consequence to Western States. But if he was one of the guys that I would have presumably at that time in my mind passed, it doesn't do me any good either because right. he's not a guy that's going to... Well, curious too it. about the, your reflection because initially you weren't planning to have pacers and um, Chris and I kind of jumped in at the last minute. So in hindsight, are you glad that we paced you? Did that help? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely it did. I think I pro- I, I definitely ran faster because I had you guys there. Like I'm, I'm weird with pacers because like I've had such weird experiences. I've had experiences where I've felt better without them and I've had experiences where I know at the end it's like they saved my race and it was specific with Havelina even in 2016 I went to Havelina with no crew or pacers it was just like I jumped into sort of last minute to get a western qualifier because I was presumably going to get offered a sponsored spot at western states and I needed a qualifier that year Havelina's the last qualifier of the year so I was really there just for that and I ended up feeling really good that day so I ended up kind of pushing things and just going for it but I didn't really have any like aspirations that day, which is why I showed up with no pacer or no crew. But then in 2017, it was like, I'm coming back as the course record holder, the previous winner. So I came with the whole deal, the crew, the pacers, mm-hmm. the whole thing. And, um, you know, I had a worse day, but on that situation, I did feel like when I finished loop three in 2017, had I not had pacers there that were coming in from out of town, it would have been a lot easier to potentially drop. And I think that there's there's a potential that they kept me from dropping, essentially. Mm-hmm. So this year, I don't think I was dropping without Pacers. But in hindsight, looking back, and even during the moment, I could kind of tell, like, you and Chris were probably, like, pulling me along just a pinch more than I would have on my own. Because I was in no man's land. Like, I didn't have mm-hmm. that visual of someone in front of me where it's like, I could get to that person. And I didn't have that person right up behind me, like having the heat on saying, if I don't keep this thing together, I'm going to get passed. So in that situation, I think pacers, at least for me anyway, become way more important because they're going to, they're going to at least give you some of that energy that you would have gotten if you had someone in sight or someone kind of on your tail. Yeah, no, Mm -hmm. that that's interesting. Your perspective. I was curious and I don't think we'd discuss. So, um, taking it to the finish, you know, you, you came around and finished in fifth, which is excellent, especially given the field. I mean, what's your perspective? How would you rate your race if you had to give yourself a grade? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say probably like a B plus maybe. 
And I would say B plus because one, I think if you look at my splits, my laps gradually get slower from one to the next. But they're not like obtusely different from one another where it's like, oh, yeah, there's a clear spot where you blew up. So most people, I think, look at my race and they're like, wow, that was a really solid race, like a consistent race. But I'm looking at it through the perspective of even being kind of the target. So I know I missed that mark a little bit. But at the end of the day, I also ran a solid race to the point where like at no point during that race did I feel like 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 I was really like in a bad place where I had overplayed my hand to a large degree. So I think I was like maybe just outside of the proper loading zone, but not enough to have a like a very visible blow up to the point where now all of a sudden I run like a 14 or something like that in, just, in the, in the time frames. Yeah. But. So as somebody coming back from injury, which I think a lot of us have been there and, um, does this give you a lot of optimism to the future? Because I think, mm-hmm. you know, for those, um, that are maybe in that tough spot and, you know, still not out of it, what mm-hmm. does this mean to you? Just that, like, what is that feeling like? Yeah. It, it, I mean, that, that's probably the most exciting thing about it to me is it was, uh, it was the more solid race I've run in a while. So it's kind of like, it gets me like one step closer to where I want to be. And the way I would describe it is I, in hindsight, if I could go back and do it all over again, I think it, the, the reasonable thing to do would be same approach, but target like 1310 to 1315. I think that might've been the right loading zone for an even split race. I think I saved myself about 20 minutes on overall time and add a little bit of time to first two laps in order to gain significantly more on three, four and five. Um, and that, I think that that would have probably been the, the actual target that I should have had for the day. So I miscalculated that by 20 minutes, maybe. So what are you going to do next? Like, I know you're somebody who's always like, um, trying to look at the data and figure out what your next play is. Oh, we're going for um, 12 and a half hours next year. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, uh, I, I, I somewhat joke, but I think like here, here's where I'm at right now. And I will reassess this as the data becomes available to me. But my thought is now, and this is kind of a little bit of a full circle on kind of what I said before is like, I see myself as somebody who gains momentum when I can compound training cycles on one another successfully. So like the more training cycles I can have, like the one I just did uninterrupted with just reasonable off seasons in between, I think the closer I get to making that 1255 to 13, an actual like number that is an even split type of a target. So, you know, if we're thinking of it in the context of if I would go back to Javelina next year, my assumption right now would be I'll have a couple more buildups and races and I'll be in a position where hopefully that would be something that's with the same effort would just produce closer to 1255 to 13. So it sounds like maybe aspirations to Javelina number four <laughs> next year. I'm sort of putting myself in a position where I have to kind of think about that, right? It's yeah. one of those things where I think I had a, well, here's the thing too. Javelina is now what I would consider fairly unarguably the second most competitive 100 miler in the United States, at least from a depth standpoint. I mean, Western States is the big boy in the United States for sure. And I don't think anything's really like really closing in on it at an accelerated rate. But if there were a race that is starting to get to the point where it is like getting that second spot notoriety, it would be Javelina. And I think we saw that last year on the women's field for sure. Last year's women's field was absolutely loaded. And it was really unique too, because it had like 
proven runners there, young runners there. This year, I would say the men's field, it had some proven runners there, but it also had a lot of young new guys that showed off their potential at the race itself, including Blake, who got second place, who broke 13 hours on his first 100 miler, <laughs> became what was the third person to ever break 13 hours at Havelina 100. So it's like, we're getting to that point where I think the Havelina 100 going forward is going to be a race where you're going to get people who are proven going after that golden ticket. And then you're also going to get young newcomers of the sport who are going to take their first swing at 100 miles. And like anything in that department, you're going to have some that connect like Blake did, and you're going to have some that blow up epically and maybe never come back or come back and try to figure it out. And then you're going to get people who are like, you're also going to get people who aren't really ready for the race necessarily or didn't focus on it, but see it as an opportunity and jump in it. And I just love that course and that event so much that it's hard to pass on that opportunity to have that exposure to competition and race for a golden ticket race and really test my limits, which are all cool things. I think like, I think the thing that motivates me the most about ultra running is I love the process of building up and seeing that development occur over a training cycle. And then I love kind of testing it on race day. So I don't need to feel like I'm going to be like better than somebody or even better than myself necessarily on race day, as long as I can kind of like run that process and get the gratification from it. So like Havelina sort of offers that as well as some bonus stuff is the way I look at it versus a race that maybe has like a very small field or a field with not a ton of competition or a field with a ton of competition, but is in an environment that isn't as exciting to me. Cause I like runnable courses and Havelina is a very runnable course versus like, you know, if I would go to say like UTMB, I'd get all the competition I could ever hope for, but it's not a course I typically enjoy as much as one like Havelina. So it's hard to say no to Havelina is what I'm saying. Yeah, no. So it sounds like October 2024 is already planned. <laughs> well, unless unless you try to get to it first, I guess. Oh, because <laughs> I think you have first dibs. I, I think my Western states may be... You're not chasing any golden tickets? I don't think so. <laughs> you are chasing something, though. I mean, we're recording this podcast a little about a week after Javelina, but that gave us enough time for you to find yourself on a race course. So what did you do this, yes, this weekend? Yeah, I... I can't say that I necessarily um, won the IQ test, but I did jump in a 50K and, you know, was able to pull off a, a good result and get a gold coin, they say, for Leadville. So I have, a, um, I need to apply for the the race in August of next year. So um, so fun you're, to have you're, a target. Your race schedule for next year starting to form itself. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was uh, I was just on a podcast with Andy Jones Wilkins, who's kind of a, a bit of a legend in this sport because he's got all sorts of uh, he's a historian, I would say for sure. And then he, you know he's running some great races back in the day too. Uh, I whenever I think of AJW now, I think of like a, a someone. At, I think I'm, I might have asked him or someone asked him what the because someone was referencing. It was some sort of like dialogue about like are like the old runners worse than the new runners and how do we weigh that? It was some like advancements in the sport type conversation. And someone had a suggestion about like, oh, well, back in the day, they used to have people on bikes handing them nutrition, kind of like crewing them on the fly, suggesting that maybe they had it easier back then. (laughs) And then I was like, well, wait a second here. I think there's probably some tech advancements that would be advantageous to run faster now. So I asked Andy, I was like, what were the flashlights like back then? He's like, we used to put D-cell batteries and we'd tape, <laughs> yeah. tape these handheld things to these D-cell battery light, lights. But anyway, so I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting way off topic. But anyway, so I was on his podcast, Crack a Brew with AJW, 
And one of the topics he wanted to cover was how we kind of navigate race scheduling, live, given that we're living together, married, and we both race ultra marathons. And he's like, well, you guys have to get around to picking races you're going to peak for. And what happens? Is there conflict there? Is there any sort of issues? And I kind of told him, like, our approach is more or less we kind of believe that the event is going to pick you as much as you're going to pick it in terms of like an inspirational target and things like that. So usually what happens is one of us gets inspired by an event for one reason or the other. And then that becomes known because we talk about it with one another. And then that's like, that's my signal that, well, I'm probably not going to necessarily do that event because I want to support you in most cases. So like it kind of almost kind of happened like over the last couple of weeks where like, you're kind of you've been kind of thinking about your your race schedule next year and just wondering what it was going to look like and then like Leadville kind of looked like an interesting option and then if Leadville is something you want to consider the Rattler 50k makes so much sense cuz you can auto qualify with it there and not have to deal with the lottery so as yeah. you mentioned you got your gold coin there at and and sort of earmarked Leadville so it looks like I'm not doing Leadville next year yeah well <laughs> i you know i think it's hard for us both to do the same goal race it's just like logistically it's hard and maybe I um maybe I rely on you too much but I really like when you can um pace me especially at a race like Leadville where you can Leadville's not one we should do together I don't think yeah I think there's races we can because there's just so much like yeah there's so much like history and energy and opportunities for people that would be like equal replacements to help Mm -hmm. out in I mean, I think Western States may be one of those because you've had so much support from other people than me with success at Western States. You could easily kind of get that energy from it. But there is definitely that that sort of mental tax of wondering how the other person's doing while you're trying to work hard yeah. out there, which I don't think is necessarily always positive. But yeah, Leadville makes, I don't think, makes no sense in both of us doing it at the same time because it's so unique in that you're pacer can crew can essentially mule for you which is rare i think then you can learn the course so when you go and run it in a future year it's beneficial but you know i'm probably getting towards the end of like my aspirations but i felt like this was another one that i'd like to check the box on and i i think this was my second hundred miler in 2013 so i think the last 10 miles i pretty much was hobbling it in um and so just kind of have some some aspirations of redemption. Well, sp- speaking one. of that race, like wasn't that you were so new to the sport back then, didn't you drop your pacer and therefore lose your yeah. nutrition? Yeah, I had no nutrition. Like I mean, there were kind a lot of a recipe of for disaster in 100 yeah, miles. Yeah, I mean, well, I just we didn't know any better, but it was, you know, looking back it's fun. I mean, I think it just again goes to um, why you say, you know, it's really out, adult outdoor recess, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, the consequences are, were low, but I would like to give it a better shot this time and, you know, maybe spend some time at altitude just because that is the aspect where, you mm-hmm. know, it's a little challenging training. Yeah. Um, but I like that, that that course is more runnable as well. So, so you're telling me to pack up the podcast studio and take it on the road for yeah. at least a period of time leading well, into Leadville next year. Yeah. I need chance to <laughs> take the dogs and go to the mountains. I think yeah. is a win. Well, summer's mm-hmm. like it was this year in Austin. I'm all for heading to the mountains for a yeah. block of time in the well, summer. But what's up next? So I think after this podcast, after we get off, don't delay because we need to book our vacation. Oh, you're on, you're all over that now, aren't yeah. you? Your race season's done. So you're all looking in for vacation destinations without races tied to them which is a rarity in our case yeah yeah (laughs) just need some need some time away so um, all right well 
we'll do that. <laughs> I will I will share before we do go though for some people who are here to kind of get the data stats from the race recap. I'm actually not going to dive into that on this podcast because I've done some pretty good write-ups with that information. So um, check out my Substack, uh, which is just the, my blog essentially, and there's a link in the show notes and on the episode links that has literally like data from lap splits to data to like what I was drinking. Like I took really good nutrition data from this race. So if you're curious about things like how many calories did I take in, how many carbohydrates, fats, proteins, what did what made up those macronutrients, how much fluid did they take in, how much electric, I have all of that basically to the gram and to the exact product. So head over to my Substack, which is just Substack or zachbitter.substack.com. Uh, or like I said, link will be in the show notes too if you want to head over there and check out any of that information. But I won't bore Nicole with that information. She hates that stuff. No, that's not true. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for joining me, Nicole. It was fun to recap with you. It was a highlight of my day. All right, there we go. All right, everyone, if you're still here, you're sticking around to hear about how I use the show sponsor Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. For Element, they make an electrolyte supplement. So what I know about me is that I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes per liter of fluid loss. So what that means is if I go out for a run and I lose two liters of sweat, then I'm also going to lose roughly 1,228 milligrams of electrolytes with it, which ironically happens to be about one packet of element. So what I likely will do is if I'm going out for a longer training session or I'm going to be out in the heat and sweating a lot, I'm going to supplement the fluid intake I have with electrolyte to make sure I have that stuff in balance. The way this usually looks for me is I'll wake up in the morning and I'll have a cup of coffee and I'll put half of one of those packets in with my coffee. It will be one of their chocolate flavors though because it's coffee after all. I'm not going to stick one of the fruity flavors in there. So that gets me kicked off. Then what happens is I go out for the workout and then I am drinking basically to thirst, but I am also targeting some numbers at times when it's hot enough and I know what my sweat loss is. But generally speaking, for every liter of fluid I'm taking in, I'm matching that with 614 milligrams of electrolytes to make sure I'm staying on top of that and remaining hydrated throughout that training session. If you're interested in a deep dive and figuring out more about your fluid loss and electrolyte needs, I actually have a couple podcast episodes that might be interesting to you. One is episode 358 with Andy Blow, where I go over all things hydration. And he talks about how I came up with that 614 milligram loss number and how you can maybe find out about yours as well as how much fluid you are losing with some simple at-home tests. Also, I did an episode a while back, episode 300, which is just titled Personalizing Workout Hydration. So check out both of those if you're interested in doing a deep dive into your hydration and electrolyte needs. Something new I added to my training and racing this year are exogenous ketones. The research for exogenous ketones is still in its early stages, but there is a lot coming out and it is getting more convincing in my opinion to the degree where I wanted to try it out. I actually stress tested it during a 15 hour, 100 mile run at the Rocky Raccoon 100 earlier this year as a way to confirm whether it was something I was gonna include in my racing protocol. 
One thing I was a little nervous about with exogenous ketones, like I am with anything I'm ingesting during an ultramarathon, is what is it going to do to digestion? I was interested in the recovery research for some time now with exogenous ketones, and there are some newer research studies now that suggest it could also have some performance applications as well, if you're able to tolerate it and get it in the right dose. So when I decided to try it out, I went with Delta G ketones because they are the ketone ester that basically all the research that has promising effects is tied to, and it's their formula that's being used in those research studies. So a lot of times you'll just go and look for an exogenous ketone, and there's all sorts of potential issues with that, whether it's a dosage or just the incorrect type, and it's not actually gonna do what the research suggests it would do. So to me, it was looking at if I want to potentially get the benefits that these could be bringing, I need to be using the one that they're actually showing the research with. So that was Delta G ketones. They actually received the DARPA funding and grant to actually put together that form. So like I said in the, the intro message, they have 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. My protocol with this right now, and this is something where I am evolving as I kind of do more with it, but at the moment, I'll do a bottle of their ketone performance, Delta G performance, and that is their little blue bottle. So I'll take one of those about 20 minutes before a big key training session, and that's it. If it's a race day though, I'll do that same protocol, but I will take another bottle about every three hours after that. So if I'm doing something that's longer duration, like that 15 hour Rocky Raccoon effort I just described, I would be doing that again at three, six, nine, and 12 during that particular performance. So like I said in the intro, if you want to chat with one of their experts, you can actually go to deltagketones.com and they have a consultation service there right now where they will help you understand the research and whether your lifestyle is even something that they would, they would be worth considering it for. So if you want to get a little more information on that, that option is available to you. Links to both Delta G ketones and element electrolytes can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 